Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and today I am delighted to be joined by Hervig Demshar. And Hervig, it's a real pleasure to have you on this podcast a uh, true legend in this uh, industry in winter sport. And I'm just very, very grateful that you've taken the time to add to our little tapestry of Salt Lake 2002 memories. No, it's uh, the pleasure is on my side. I wouldn't call myself a legend. Sounds too old. <laughs> but uh, no, it, the pleasure is on my side uh, to be able to talk to you. Well, you look like you're joining us from a very comfortable, cozy location. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing now and where you're joining us from? I'm sitting up here in Park City. When I look out the window, it's um, snowing hard. In the end, the snow came because this season was really not that great so far from a snowfall perspective. I work for a company that's called Powder. It's an adventure lifestyle company. It's privately held by John Cumming. I'm working for the company since 2007. And um, we have uh, and operate and own Nine ski resorts across the United States. Uh, one of them is in Canada. Um, I'm not going to go into details uh, which the ski resorts are, but uh, some of them are quite big. And they're spread out from Vermont uh, into Colorado, all the way to Oregon, uh, Nevada, and uh, California, uh, and also here in Utah. And uh, we also own a company called Woodward Camps. It's a, a youth camp and also on a TV channel outside TV and my role there is uh, for the first uh, five years that I worked uh, for Powder as the chief opening officer to run all those key resorts in the last seven years. I am a senior vice president of international business development. Um, so we are trying to look for other opportunities actually worldwide to buy ski resorts uh, and other whatever adventure lifestyle companies. And uh, besides that, I'm also president for Powderbird. It's a helicopter skiing business that's in Little Cottonwood Canyon, uh, where Snowbird is. So that's that's what I'm doing right now. Wow, you are an extremely busy man. Does it afford you any time to actually get out on the slopes, or are you spending all the time in boardrooms running the companies? No, 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 no. I pretend to be busy. That's a trick. <laughs> and uh, no, I have the chance to go out and ski. Uh, I'm a little bit more picky after all these years of skiing, you know, and it really it's cold and snowy and the visibility is bad. I, I'd i rather do office work, but uh, I, I take time to go out and have fun. Uh, I still know how to make a turn, but it doesn't look so good anymore. Uh, when you get older, you know, the brain and body, they part ways. And I sometimes ski and go like, okay, what I could do 20 years ago doesn't work anymore. So I kind of stop before I kill myself. <laughs> But uh, for me, skiing was always a, a social activity. So I like to go out with friends. I started to do a little bit more touring, backcountry skiing. And, and the rest, yeah, you spend uh, in times like this, you spend almost your whole day if you're not, if you're not outside uh, sitting on a Zoom call or whatever other platform and, uh, and, uh, and work with your team. Well, you mentioned that here locally, we've suffered a bit this year with the snowfall. We haven't had a lot of snow, although in the last few days, we've had some generous snowfall. But how has the pandemic impacted your business and what you do? You know, uh, sometimes people aren't traveling anymore. And if you are responsible for international business development, can you go overseas? I mean, what's the impact of this pandemic on the work that you're currently doing? Yeah, for me personally, you know, I did travel over the last six, seven years, an average of 170, 180,000 miles on Delta Airlines uh, to the degree that I started or, you know, flight attendants or people at the check-in would start to recognize me. It's not a proud thing to be at because you're, you're gone so much. Uh, I haven't traveled for a year and uh, uh, the the and I actually don't miss it, I have to be honest. Um, it's actually really cool to be home. To be home like this with uh, with COVID nineteen is a little bit of a problem. Uh, the main the main situation is actually skiing. You know, to uh, to be out there on the slopes is a very safe environment. 
But we had to really adjust, uh, for example, how many people sit on the chairlift, how we are queuing the people to the to the chairlift, how many people do we allow into the ski resort, when do we open up our F&B outlets, you know, what are the bookings, and how do we deal with uh, with the virus within uh, within our hotels. Plus, uh, talking about helicopter skiing, you know, you're sitting in a very, very closed environment in a helicopter. Uh, so we have separation curtains between the guests that we take out for skiing and the guides and the pilot. And we are very careful with our lounge that we have for Powderbird in, uh, in Snowbird, uh, how many people we let in. And, uh, and we normally supply uh, breakfast and lunch. Uh, that's really difficult. But we've managed so far, and I have to knock on wood, um, um, to go through the season so far without any big incidents. Uh, the problem really is if somebody within F and B, you know, a waiter or a chef or a cook or uh, you know, people within the uh, in the hotel uh, that are back of the house uh, get sick, we have to shut down, for example, the restaurant for two weeks or ten days, as it is now. So it's 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 very difficult, but uh, I think we manage. Uh, we are in North America. I actually ways ahead of what I see in Europe. For example, in France, all the ski resorts are closed. Um, I don't know if they're ever going to open up this year. Austria is uh, on and off, depending on the area. There's always kind of uh, local lockdowns that they have. So ski there's like Austria, there's no après skiing. This is one of the most important things. Um, there's no hotels open. There's no, you know, no restaurants open. Uh, so if you want to go and ski, you you basically go uh, straight to the slopes, go and ski. If you come from Germany to Austria, you have to quarantine for 10 days. So nobody's coming from there. Germany is some places are open, some places decided to close. So it's, it's I know it's a long answer, but, um, you know, Italy, some places are open. Scandinavia, very careful with skiing, just their local people. Um, so it's, it's touch and go, you know, and, and then the rules change the whole time. So you have to be very... Uh, very quick on your feet and, uh, and nimble to, to adjust to the situation. But knocking on wood, it's going okay so far. We have another two, three months to go. Yeah, another two, three months to go. Uh, the governor here in our state last week did a, what do you call that, a news conference, I guess, a press conference or whatever, and, and mentioned that in his view, we were in the fourth quarter to use a, a basketball or a football reference, uh, American football reference, uh, <laughs> meaning that we're getting near to the end. I hope that this is the last ski season that is adversely impacted by COVID and that we can return to some sense of normal once the vaccines come through and everything else, but we'll see. Yeah, it's uh, you know, we, we did uh, just give you a quick story. You can cut it out if it's not important. But when the whole thing happened last year, it's about a year ago, really March uh, 16, uh, my younger son and his girlfriend came home from a vacation in Austria and they were basically kicked out of the country. They said, you go home as fast as possible. We here in the house went on a, on a lockdown. Uh, so all my kids with their partners came to our house. Luckily, it's big enough. And we stayed together for, I would say, about five months. Uh, and very careful. And uh, when we started uh, sitting together at the dinner table, and created a routine where each couple has to cook twice a week and uh, they had their own duties around the house with recycling, whatever it was. Um, I told them if they know Tua Heyerdahl, that's a Norwegian explorer, uh, and there's a movie about the Contiki. You know, there was a balsa wood uh, float that went from Peru to French Polynesia and it was trying to prove, um, you know, this was the, the, the current that carries you there. And I said, do you guys know how long this, uh, this trip took? And one of my oldest son's girlfriend is from Oslo, from Norway. And she said, 101 days. And I said, this was last year, March. I said, you got to be ready for 101 days minimum. And they looked at me like it just fell out of the sky, like an idiot. They said, what are you doing, Dad? And um, so they, this is my long circle to, to a point that I want to make is we still don't know, you know how long this thing is going to go. It's really depending on the vaccines. You know, if there's a mutant virus that could throw us a curveball, we, we don't know yet. So as long as people are disciplined, uh, I hope we're going to get out of it faster than we, than we think. But I'm, I'm still very conservative that it's going to take a while. And my kids sometimes ask me, is it going to be the same? And I, I believe it's never going to be the same again. You know, I think people are way more conscious about uh, viruses and how to fight it. And, 
how to behave in public. Some people will never figure it out, but the majority will figure it out how to stay safe. Well, I hope so. I mean, I think that's hopefully a positive outcome from this is that we all learn how to protect ourselves and care for each other better than we did before. And as a result, generally speaking, hopefully we'll be a little bit healthier. All right. Now that it's snowing, many of us who are enduring the winter cold wish that we might be on a beautiful tropical island somewhere. And that takes me to my little marooned on an island question. So, Ervig, if you were marooned on an island, if you could only have one album, one movie, and one meal, what would those be? It gives away your age and my age when they talk about an album. That's true. <laughs> Vinyl, record. Uh, I think it's pretty, uh, I actually went to music school when I grew up in Austria. And for me, I still play the guitar once in a while, but um, I suck. Uh, but for me, it would be very clear. It would be Neil Young. And it would be a tough choice between Harvest and, uh, and uh, you know, after the gold rush. This would be kind of a, a tough choice for me. But it would for sure would be Neil Young or something from Crosby, Steels, Nash & Young. All right. That's fantastic for the album. Let's get to the movies. For me, anything from Monty Python. I like to laugh. You know, sometimes you have to laugh a little bit. I like these guys. I watch them forever. And I was thinking about a, a movie, like, a, not really, I'm not so into watching movies, uh, but uh, this stuff, comedy, I did like always. All right. Monty Python and the Holy Grail is one of my favorites. And I appreciate you mentioning Monty Python. Now let's get to the really important essential item, which is food. Any meal could be a home cooked meal, could be something that you have at a restaurant. What would your go-to meal be if you were marooned on an island yeah so there's going to be some people going like for sure he's from austria and it's a very clear thing but i have a i have a tradition when i travel and i was lucky traveling worldwide over the last seven years and, and even before i love curry i love indian food and whenever i in a in a nice city like for example sydney or i go to oslo or wherever i am i look for the best Indian restaurant and uh, just either sit down with friends that travel with me or just go along. So for me, curry is a, I really like curry. All right. Well, I second that motion. I love curry as well. And you know, one of the great things about Indian food is that you can find good Indian food in a lot of cities. You can find good Italian food. You can find good Asian food. Uh, you can find good Indian food. And that's one thing that I really like about it. I love Mexican food, but it's hard to find good Mexican food outside of North America. For whatever reason, I have a difficult time uh, finding good Mexican food. But Indian food, I'm with you 100%. I normally should bring my wife, shouldn't I? Of course. But I, I'm, I'm a ruin, so I can't choose. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, okay, this is my podcast. I can create whatever <laughs> rules I want. You want to be marooned with your wife? That's perfect. And you guys can uh, have whatever meals yeah. and music yeah. you want to have together. Okay, enough of that fun stuff. Let's go back to Salt Lake 2002, the topic of this podcast. Uh, you mentioned that you grew up in Austria. So how do you go from Austria to Salt Lake City? Yeah, so it, I'm going to try to make it super quick. Um, I, you know, I grew up in Graz. Uh, it's the second biggest city in Austria. Um, and I went to university there. I did ski race, but I was never really that good to make it all the way to the top. Um, so I never really made it to the Austrian ski team, but I have a, a master's degree in sports science, geography, and economics from my hometown university. And then uh, I wanted to actually become a teacher, and I hated teaching. You know, you have to do an internship for a year, and I, it took me eighty percent of my energy uh, to keep the kids calm. And I, I kind of figured out this is not good. And uh, by accident, based on me having a ski racing career, not really great. But I knew some people from the Austrian ski team, and I got a, I got a call uh, from one of the coaches and said, you know, I need a conditioning coach plus a ski coach to help me coach the Austrian ski team. So this was 90, 90, uh, 1984. Got to be careful with the numbers now. 1984, a long time ago. And I just thought, uh, you know, I'm going to do it because I already had a job as a teacher then. And uh, normally, teacher, a teacher in Austria is a, a government job. You, you got to really kill somebody to lose the job or do something really super stupid. 
Uh, and you have insurance, it's a seriously nicely protected job. And you have two and a half months off in the summer where you can travel or do something else. But I, I had this idea, I had this, it was, I really thought this must be cool to work with really elite athletes. So I did, I did, uh, I did that for a year and uh, kind of got stuck because I really like to work with the athletes. And I worked my way up all the way to head coach. I was the youngest head coach for the Austrian national Alpine team. Um, I was 32 years old. I still believe in hindsight it was, it was too early. I didn't have the total experience, but this is, this is what I did. I always took a challenge. And I basically coached the Austrian ski team in different roles all the way to the Olympic Games in Lillehammer 94. And this was about 12, 13 years in different roles. And then after the Games in Lillehammer, I got, uh, I, I, I got a call um, from the U.S. key team if I would be interested in coaching the U.S. women's team as a head coach. So I came over here to Park City. This is really what brought me to Park City um, because the headquarters are here. And so I coached uh, uh, the U.S. women's key team. This was uh, between 94 and 98. This was the time where Hillary Lean, Bikabu Street, some other kids were really behaving, uh, performing quite well. And uh, I left the U.S. key team after Bikabu won the, uh, the gold medal in Nagano 98. And, uh, you know, if you're coaching, you travel so much. And at the time, you know, married to an Australian woman. Uh, we met each other in 1988, and we are together since then. Uh, we at the time had two boys, and uh, you know, if if you, I had a mentor once that said, if you, if you uh, coach longer than 15, 17, 18 years, you had married, you at least married twice, and being married twice is very expensive. So, <laughs> I was actually looking for a way out. Way out of marriage or a way out of coaching? Way out of coaching. Very clear. <laughs> no, no, we are still married. You know, it's, it was 30 years this year. Um, um, knowing each other for 32 years. And one of our daughter was on her way. My wife was pregnant. So I was lucky based on my connections with the International Ski Federation and also with the U.S. Ski Team. Uh, and knowing some people at the organizing committee at, at SLOG. Uh, that I got this job offer to be uh, director of Alpine Sports. So that's kind of how I got uh, to the United States and how I got into the organizing committee. And I was director of Alpine Sports. And I oversaw from a sports operation perspective, not the whole thing. With uh, with my team, I oversaw snow basin, Park City and Valley. So everything that had to do with Alpine freestyle and snowboard. That's how I got here. And I'm still here. It's crazy. That was a fantastic and incredible story. You transitioned out of coaching, which you've been doing for a very long time, and come to work in an organizing committee. So what was that transition like? I mean, was it easy? Was it seamless? Or was it a bit of a challenge coming into a whole new structure and a role that was, although you had subject matter expertise in alpine skiing, now you're organizing these events uh, rather than coaching the athletes. So what was that transition like for you? So there were, there were two things. The, the, the first thing was I always wanted to, for me, for me, the coaching was not the end, you know, because I still, a lot of my friends that I started coaching with in 82, 84, 85, uh, they are still doing the same thing, you know, and, and it, 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 I would say it got boring, but I, I, I was looking for another challenge at the time. Um, and, uh, I, I would call it, I wanted to jump the fence. I was curious about what is it, because as a coach, you're organizing an event almost every day. You know, if like in Austria had, had um, almost 40 athletes, you know, there was about 60 staff. If you go to Australia for a four week camp, you bring seven tons of equipment. And then every day you go on the hill, you basically organize an event. So I thought I can do that because that's that's not that complicated for me. But I wanted to jump the fence and see how it looks, what it looks like inside of the fence of a big organizing committee for for um, for a sport event. And these were Olympic Games or World Championships. And I'd been at the time to five Olympic Games as a coach and six uh, World Championships. So I saw that as a customer, as a coach with the athletes. 
but I wanted to see, let's jump the fence and see what it looks like inside. And then after my time working at different organizing committees for games, I had the desire or the desire grew to jump the fence again and see how is it really when you run a ski resort. So it was kind of my train of thought. Uh, this, this mentor of mine that said, don't stay a coach too long, otherwise you know, it's going to be expensive with your second wife. He also told me a, a, a man should have a, three careers in his life and, uh, and, and do new challenging things. So when you end up at the, you know, at, at, at the section in the road where one goes left into the bush and the other one goes right and it's a clear path, I always had the tendency to go the more difficult way. And then I started complaining to my wife as she still complains about me. Why did I do that? Why didn't I do the easy way? But it's just something I wanted to do to take the challenge. But this jumping the fence, uh, you know, that's uh, something that people can learn, uh, you know, to reinvent yourself and, 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 and not be afraid of a new challenge that comes at you if you go into an unknown territory. Because sometimes you don't even know what you know. And I was always lucky to have good friends and good people around me. I don't know why, but uh, I always had people that I, if I didn't know what to do, I could call them and say, hey, what would you do now? You've done that. You know, I have no idea. Well, I really, really love this advice that you've given that you received from your mentor and you've continued on this having like three different careers that resonates with me personally for a variety of reasons, which I won't get into here. But I really appreciate you sharing that because it's actually making me think about a lot of things. Now, let's come back to this jumping of the fence. You jump the fence from coaching into the Salt Lake Organizing Committee. What do you find when you get there? I'm sure you kind of took a lay of the land, as we say, right? So as you surveyed the, the landscape inside the committee and the current state of the plans for 2002, what was your initial reaction? First of all, I was super excited. Then the way I looked at the, the office building uh, where we started off, it was like a Tower of Babel. Not only from a language perspective, but also, and I'm not sure if that's a good analogy, also from a knowledge perspective. And my cockiness as a former coach that was kind of successful there's way better coaches than me out there, but it was kind of a nice gig that I had. Um, I got humbled pretty quick. And I figured out I actually don't know nothing. I just knew a sliver of that what was necessary to organize the games. But for me, the the the, the different people and where they came from, the different countries and and uh nobody really did worry if he had an accent. Yeah. It's something I had to learn afterwards when I started to work for a company where there's only uh, English speakers working. Still now, after 14 years, they tilt their head when I do a presentation because they don't understand what I'm trying to say. And they have not figured out when I make a joke and when I'm serious. So, But, uh, but for me, it was just fascinating, all these experts coming together. Now, let's talk about challenges. You come in here, Salt Lake has established resorts. They have some infrastructure, but they've never hosted an Olympic Games before. So what were some of the challenges that you faced when you came on board, when you looked at the, the, the various venues and their suitability for alpine sport? And what were some of the, I don't know, creative solutions that you came up with to address some of those challenges? And I, I don't know if, if, if we had uh, creative solutions. I, I was lucky to be able to build a really cool team. And I'm not going to, I'm going to try not to mention any names because I'm going to miss somebody and this person is going to be angry at me or disappointed. But uh, the whole sports team, you know, I sent snow was really cool. Uh, everybody was ready to share information. Uh, that was later called transfer of knowledge, but you know nobody was really holding back. Everybody was working together, and uh, hence it was easier to to uh, to overcome challenges. Um, 
my biggest challenge is my I would say my biggest challenge was the uh the different levels of preparedness for my responsibility with our teams. Um when you look at the Valley Park City and uh, Snow Basin uh, in 1998, where Park City uh, was kind of the local family resort with very great infrastructure, really good snowmaking, very professional leadership. Um, with Deer Valley, uh, a luxury resort, you know, where your rich uncle would take you because you can't afford it yourself any younger. And then there was snow basin. And snow basin had no snowmaking, had three old grooming equipments, had five, six, maybe 10 people in the ski school, they had a little ski club. Uh, the lifts were old. And the only thing that we really had is uh, uh, that the owner, uh, Mr. Earl Holding, you know, was ready to invest in the games and fix it up. But the four years to get this thing ready and to build a team a knowledgeable team that can run the races and the volunteers around that, uh, that was a huge challenge. And, uh, you know, I have to be careful what I said, what I say now, but when I saw Snow Basin, when I started to work for Slog, uh, it was uh, it was really difficult. It was bad. Uh, beautiful mountain, absolutely beautiful mountain. And, you know, after the games, it became an absolutely outstanding tool as a professional ski resort, very well run. And, uh, and uh, it's cool to see what the games can do, you know, and how you can develop out of a challenge to be ready for the games uh, and then see it afterwards. I still like to go up there. I don't know anybody anymore, but I just go, go up there and on a nice day, you go to the top, you know, look down to the salt lake and, and you can, you know, on strawberry, you can cruise long chest turns and have fun, and then uh, you can get good food. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it, it was outstanding the way how that has developed. But uh, I have to say, and I said I'm not going to say the names, but without Mitt Romney and Fraser Bullock, um, that we're trying to understand what the challenges were there because this is, you know, it, every sport it's the biggest sport at the Winter Games, but the downhill is a challenge based on the vertical drop, based on the size of the field of play, and uh, we still were lucky to have a lot of uh, spectators that came to watch despite September 11, and uh, this was a huge challenge. And 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 Mitt and and Fraser really helped us as a team to be successful there. They came quite often to me and they, they said, "Do you have?" everything with your team that you need to be successful. So that, that, that for sure was the biggest challenge. You mentioned Mitt and Frazier. You also mentioned 9-11. Really, the, the organizing committee suffered two seismic events there in its life cycle. One was the, the IOC scandal, which um, resulted in a leadership change and Mitt and Frazier eventually joining. And then 9-11 happened. So... Uh, what were the impacts, if any, on the work that you were doing from these two seismic events? Uh, <laughs> again, I always got to be careful what I say. Uh, the the you know I just started when the leadership change came, and there was maybe three or four weeks where there was a vacuum, and then Mitt and Fraser came, and it was fine. Uh, we always were joking we should have rewritten our contracts and pay us more, but this was a stupid joke. It was just a joke over the. Um, and then, you know, September 11 was just an operational issue with the safety, you know, to get in and out of the venues, um, in, you know, in skiing, these people, each athlete has about 20 pairs of skis. If they do downhill and super G, uh, if you have a figure skater, it's just a little carry on it's, you know, and it, it, it shouldn't sound stupid, but you have to carry huge amounts of equipment, equipment in and out of the safety zone. And, the field of play is big and, and the, the, the risk outdoors is to really find, find danger it was very, very complicated. Uh, and it was not only for Alpine, it was for all the outdoor, outdoor sports. Uh, you know, to sweep an indoor venue is a little bit easier, in my opinion. Uh, indoor venues have the other challenges. You know, all the, all the outdoor sports people say indoor is easy. You just turn the light switch. It's absolutely not true. I've learned later in, in, uh, in Torino and also in, in Vancouver. That uh, ice sports are also very, very difficult to to organize and to have the right 
the right ice temperature and the right quality of ice. Uh, so, but it was really September 11 was with very short notice, um, <laughs> very short notice uh, a challenge. I can give you one example. At that time in the Alpine world, especially for downhill, the the industry was trying to use totally new waxes. So the way how they wax the skis. And this, this, they were highly poisonous. So all the technicians that would apply the waxes had to wear masks and gloves. Um, and um, I don't want to go too much into technical details, but we had people from the FBI uh, with us in meetings and they were asking us uh, about the sweep, you know, with the, with the drug dogs or the sniffer dogs that would go through all the wax cabins that we had. We had like, I think we had about, uh, I don't know, like 120 wax cabins you know, for different nations. Maybe it's too much what I'm saying right now. I can't remember. Uh, but there was a plan how we're going to sweep the venue before we start going in, into operations. And I brought samples of these wax in a little box. And there's all these FBI agents and, and uh, the experts for drugs. And I put it on the table. And they just went like this. And I said, what's going on? I said, it looks like crack. If somebody of us sees that, we're going to confiscate that. I said, no, this is normal wax that they're using, but it looks really suspicious. So there was an entertaining meeting that we had there. It's so funny. Normal spectators or citizens or, or consumers, viewers who watch this on television would have absolutely no idea <laughs> that yeah. there could be challenges associated with the wax that is being applied to skis and that the Secret Service might have a problem with the wax that's being applied. Absolutely it's, it's, fascinating. It's a, yeah, it's like it's like a block, a white block or a dark block or or it's powder, white powder. So anyway, so the, the, the guys were funny. They were, we, we spent a lot of time talking to them and then when we showed them what's going on, uh, it was so much easier to work with them. You know, it goes back to that. If, you know, you have to respect for the needs of the other party in, in, in that you do the other function that you do the games with. If you explain to them, you know, there's no fear. They understand what the issues are. And, uh, and then you go, you know, we have, we have so-called in, in the Alpine sports, we have forerunners. So these are people they'd fall on the course to test the course. And I was in a meeting once and uh, I said, we have, we're going to have six forerunners for the downhill. And one of the people from marketing said, I thought we have Chevy as a sponsor. And it took me a little bit to figure that out because she thought, you know, Toyota forerunner. Nice. So we had, <laughs> we had, we had this thing going. So it was all good. We explained to her and she was fine. Oh, forerunner the vehicle instead of forerunner the, uh, <laughs> the athletes, you know, well, speaking of forerunners, it takes a team to plan and deliver these games. And you had to recruit and staff up and manage a team. And we've heard many people on this podcast say that the, that the teams in Salt Lake City, the staff, uh, they, were just, they were just exceptional. You know, the, the teams perform, performed at a very high level. And I'm curious about this. How... You know, how did you ensure that you could bring on the right people? You could put them in positions where they could perform at their very best. You know, that I was lucky. I mean, I would say 90% of the time that we're part of our, you know, snow basin, Park City, D Valley team, Alpine Freestyle Snowboards, I knew for more than 10 years in different roles, traveling on the World Cup tour or working for the US ski team at least for four years. Because even if you're an Alpine coach, you have meetings at the US ski team and they, you know, they are, they go across functions. That means you also sit in when the, the freestyle coach or the snowboard coach or the cross country coach uh, or, the, or the ski ski camping coach, they present their budgets. You know, it's during the summer, you sit in the office together they, they show their budgets, they show their goal setting for the next year, they, they explain how they name the team. So there's a lot of transfer of, of, of knowledge going on. And so I had, I had the luxury that, you know, I, I don't think that I ever, uh, in all the calls that I made and asked people, you want to join the team, 
for the different responsibilities within uh, within sports operation. I can't recall that anybody said no. They were actually saying, I'm so ready, let's go. And uh, knowing each other or knowing these people and them knowing me was already there, you know, uh, especially on the uphind side because, you know, you travel, it's like a white circus. You travel from place to place and, and uh, as much as people think that the um, – uh, on the World Cup doing ski racing that, you know, nations don't talk to each other. It's totally not true. You know, you, it's totally, um, it's like a, it's like a little world. Like, as I said, uh, once a, a Tower of Babel where you, you spend time with the people that you like because you're on the road for 280 days a year. So you spend time with the people that you want to spend time with. And it's not necessarily uh, just the Austrians or the U.S. team. You go across nations and you'll see if the U.S. team sit with the French coaches or the athletes or with the Norwegians or the Austrians sit with the Swiss. So sometimes if people don't understand the sport, they look at it and go like, imagine the, the Austrians, they're having dinner together with the Swiss team or the Austrian head coach has a beer, you know, with the uh, head coach of the Swiss team or the Norwegians or the Slovenians or whatever it is. Uh, it's a very, you know, polyglot undertaking. So I was lucky knowing all these people and their characters. And and, uh, and we actually had an international team. I actually brought one person from Norway over. It was part of the Lillehammer Games and chief of uh, chief of uh, a course there. And uh, so, yeah, it was, uh, there were very, very little frictions. Uh, nothing above and beyond they did only have when they work hard out there in the cold for hours. But it was good. It was, uh, I, I was proud of the team. Uh, and uh, we had a lot of fun working together. This, this is, uh, you make friends for life when you do that. Because there's some crazy challenges that you have to go through and you just do it together. And then everything is easier. So I still have a lot of contact with people that, uh, that I worked with. And I'm actually working on a project, the World Cup Alpine Women's Race in one of our ski resorts in Killington in Vermont. Um, and we have, uh, we went from nothing to full on. Uh, and we have over the weekend uh, between 30 and 35,000 spectators, what is unheard of in North America for these races. And there's a whole crew that I know from the Olympic Games that they actually, <laughs> they actually put the event on. I just try to look good. <laughs> so we have, we have a lot of fun doing that together. So it did the friendship stay. And then there's, you know, there's calls where, you know, can you write me a reference or where we help people along that are a little bit younger than me or, or a lot younger than me to help them into, into other jobs. It, it's still going on. I think it's fascinating. You know, sometimes you hear about in, in certain, uh, Games editions, for example, there could be friction between the International Federation and the sport team and the organizing committee, or there can be challenges between sport and venue management about who has responsibilities for doing what and so on and so forth. But it sounds to me from what you're saying that in Salt Lake, it was fairly smooth. Yeah, you know, but, but you know, it's, it's, all, it's always smooth after the fact <laughs> when you look back. Uh, it was not that easy in the beginning. You know, I only can speak... Uh, speak personally you know for me to 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 coming from coaching or being a head coach i could change from today until tomorrow what we wanted to do we could have a meeting at seven o'clock at night and the next day at seven o'clock in the morning we, we would be adjusted we had full control uh working across different functions i had to learn you know it's easier said now you know you know i was going like what are these guys doing you know because we said, we're going to put the finish there. And then the guys that did the overlay said, no, that's not how it's going to be. You know? And then the guys who were in charge for parking said, there's 120 parking spots. And I said, I measured it. It's 200. No, it's going to be 120. And this is what the parking permit is going to look like. And this is the accreditations you're going to get. So you learn, you learn that. But if, you know, I walked away from, from that being in the end, a great experience. Uh, in the beginning, it's weird. It's totally, yeah, yeah. And then they have the Australians come from the summer games, you know, telling you what to do on the downhill. 
there's a couple of really great stories. I had, I had one, I have to say that. So I said, I'm not going to say any names, but Adam Gray was the venue manager um, that uh, uh, was in charge for Snow Basin. So he oversee the, oversaw the whole thing. We're still friends. We still talk a lot. And uh, when I heard that they bring the venue manager, venue manager from the Aquatic Center from Sydney to run the Alpine venue, I said, what is going on, you know? And I was not in favor of that move. So, but this was done by the event management group. And they said, no, this is going to be your venue manager. And then you have two options, you know, you fight it or you make it work. And we made it work. We became friends. Uh, and I'm not kidding. And, uh, and one of the goals of Adam Gray, who came from, from Sydney, from the Sydney Games, was to ski the man's downhill a week before the Olympic Games. And he was a rugby player, very athletic, but he never skied. So he took ski lessons and I skied with him, other people skied with him. And then about 10 days before we started preparing for the Olympic Games for the downhill, he and I skied the whole course. And it was very bonding. And how did he do? He did good. He fell once, the rest was fine. He was sweating hard though. <laughs> <laughs> because you know rugby players they try to do it's not finesse they try to be strong so nobody i mean to go from a beginner within four years to ski the man's downhill at the olympic games you gotta be okay you gotta be good so yeah so you know there's there's endless stories like this that you build but uh coming back to the functional approach that took me a while to figure it out but as i said you can fight it or you just go with it and uh, I just embraced it and said, okay. Well, take us through games time. Uh, what were you doing? Were you really super busy up 20 hour days? What was a day in the life like for you, Ervig, during games time? Um, getting up super early. I spent the first 10 days really up at Snow Basin uh, in this area, because this were the, this is where the, uh, Alpine events started where there was the highest exposure of, you know, delays or postponements. And we actually had to shift around some stuff, uh, in the beginning. And then I would just bounce back between, between snow basin and park city Valley. So there could be a day where I would get up at five and, uh, be in Valley uh, park city in the morning until eight. And it would just go the back road up to snow basin driving all the, the police people crazy because going too fast and would go up to snow basin, work there, stay the night up there in Ogden and uh, had a hotel room up there where I could sleep. And then next day would spend time in snow basin in the morning and then go back to Park City. So I was out there. I was out there. I don't know. I didn't count the hours. You do what you have to do. I was used to that from coaching because, you know, you get up early, you go, to bed late, you don't count the hours. You just you just move move around, and you're not even tired. You have so much, you know, energy and adrenaline going, and uh, and you can you know I was tired afterwards. Uh, I was like for two days, I was really tired, and then we had to ramp up for the Paralympics. That were actually super fun to to organize with all the alpine events up in Snow Basin. It was really cool, uh, and that's a little bit more chill, you know. Uh, from from an atmosphere perspective, but uh, yeah, it was it was for me. It was almost like it was enjoyable. It was like going back to the coaching hours, you know, that you spend outdoors and run around them. And hands on, I have a pretty laissez-faire style. I only go hands on if uh, if I see something going out of uh, out of whack. Um, and uh, and then that's the reason why you build a team. You know, you empower. Uh, the key managers for the different venues and they did their job. There was very little, very little hands-on that you had to do or had, I had to do. If you're not ready, then it's going to be a cluster. If you, if you have to, it, I, I remember there was a time about three, four weeks before the games where we were ready and I had nothing to do. I actually got bored. Uh, and it sounds stupid, but, uh, we were ready. We had all the documents ready. We had all the volunteers trained. I was at all the volunteer meetings to kick it off. We had about 500 sport volunteers in 
in snow basin and uh, each about 200, 250 in Deer Valley and in, in Park City. And uh, I still, after the games, I still had people that would come up to me when I went shopping, I would say, give me a huge hug. Say, hey, it was not much fun at the games. I was like, well, I have no idea who we are because you, don't, you can't remember everybody. You know, it sounds cocky, but uh, if I knew, I knew, but there were some people that I cannot, I have no idea where, uh, where I should put you now. Yeah, so, yeah, it's, I, I can't say more. You just get up in the morning and go to bed when you're tired. Uh, Salt Lake City planned very well, but did anything unexpected happen? I, I mean, sometimes there are weather challenges in games, right, uh, where you end up having some some delays or postponements. And you mentioned the Paralympic Games. Sometimes it can get warm in March. Um, but were, were there any other you know challenges, weather-related, or anything unexpected that happened that you had to deal with? So Paralympics, the events are long, you know, and it was it was getting warm. And that was actually the Sochi Games. They, they had a tough time there because it was so late and so low altitude. Um, but it's just long days uh, at the Paralympics. Uh, when I look back at the Games, uh, there was one situation in the Valley for the men's slalom where we, where I would say, if somebody would come to me and say, where did you screw up? And this is where it was not me alone with our team. It was between the International Ski Federation and uh, the weather. And uh, and us, there were too many people trying to give input on the course preparation. And we got snow overnight. And it's a very specific thing. If you get, if the hard prepared snow for an Alpine event, gets about 10, five to 10 centimeters new snow on top of it. It warms up the hard surface and it, 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 the course preparation sucks. And we got the snow coming through earlier than we thought. So we we had a really bad surface for the main slalom. So that, that's what, that was unexpected, very little to control. If I could do something better after the fact, that would be having a, maybe a, another 60 more volunteers because all volunteers between Park City and the Valley were tired after two weeks and bring in for the last five days, 60 fresh people to, to be fully motivated and to be out there the whole night and then side sleep the course. But otherwise there was, there was no weather was fine. We actually were super lucky because we had a huge inversion and uh, we had bluebirds for like 10 days. Just the last two days we got snow and what I recall, and, uh, you know, in the indoor venues, it doesn't really matter if there's any version or not. It's more for the price giving and, you know, for the atmosphere in Salt Lake. But uh, I didn't I didn't worry too much about the inversion. It was very selfish on my side. You mentioned the Olympic Games, the Paralympic Games, and then those games end and you move on to other things. And you've talked a little bit about that. You've mentioned some other host cities that you that may, you may have been supporting and and helping. But before we kind of get to the post games those games end as you look back and you survey time there at Salt Lake, uh, what would be your goosebump moment? No, it's, I thought about it a lot. Uh, uh, there's one, you know, one overall thing is, you know, the team effort that we put into that. Uh, the, the other things for me were the volunteers. Uh, and I think in the international world of, what I would rather hear from, you know, from the snow sports, that's a big memory, you know, how friendly the volunteers were. And you can be the super expert, you know, that gets paid and, and uh, without volunteers, you can't do nothing, absolutely nothing. And uh, they were just, uh, they were just the coolest. It took a little bit to train, uh, to train them up. But in the end, especially the, the volunteers that are on the field of play, you know, there's a lot of danger, especially on snow. Uh, but no, I was, uh, I was, uh, uh, very impressed with the volunteers there. Uh, and then the personal thing is that goes back and, and it's a selfish thing. I, I, one of my athletes that I coached for quite a long time in Austria, his name is Stefan Eberharter and you can look him up. Uh, um, but he, he was very successful when he was super young. And then kind of from a performance perspective, uh, faded away for like five years. 
and short before the games, uh, he changed equipment and he did the right thing. And I was not even coaching him anymore. I coached him during the first phase of his fame. And uh, he won a gold, bronze, and a silver. So he, he, he won the gold, silver, bronze. He won the whole package. And I was in the finish when he won, um, when he won the gold medal. He won it in, in giant slalom in Park City. And uh, we looked at each other and it was kind of a, a special moment for me because you don't need to talk. You know, you just look at each, each other and, you know, that was kind of cool to see that. So it's kind of a personal moment that I had. That I had. And we still have contact. And uh, yeah, he's, he was actually after the games, he won a couple of more medals in other Olympics. And he's, uh, he was just a very, very humble, nice guy, sometimes almost too nice. And, uh, you know, if you're in elite sports, you got to be sometimes a little bit, bit um, an ego to fight the way the other guys, they try to climb the mountain. Oh, those fantastic memories. I really appreciate you sharing those. Uh, to kind of wrap us up, why don't you give us a little sense of the work that you did afterwards and then the lessons that you've learned along the way in Salt Lake City or other places that serve as kind of foundational guiding principles for you, things that you think could be helpful for our listeners as they're also charting their career paths in whatever stage they might be. The the so I had the I had the honor to be part of a, an audit from the IOC uh, of the Salt Lake City Games afterwards. So I stayed employed for another I think four months. Uh, Fraser Bullock was asking me, "Do you want to do that?" And uh, it was really cool. And then afterwards, I got a I got an offer from Turin uh, for the 2006 Games, and uh, I was there twice. I didn't I didn't like the the job offer. It was just I had the feeling that just we trying to hire somebody that had experience to keep the IOC calm. And then the third time that I was there, it was a real job. And then I decided to go with the family. And uh, the, the, the cultural experience was super cool. The work experience was very difficult if you don't speak the language. Even if you try, you know, it's, it's, it, it's too short the time to really do that. Uh, from there, I went to Vancouver. Uh, I had a, it was super fun in Vancouver. Uh, the Canadians up there are super organized and, uh, and, uh, they knew exactly what to do. And you could see that at the outcome, you know, there was nothing last minute, like in Torino, Torino, some stuff was, they were still carrying flower pots into, into the stadium when the opening ceremony was already going. Uh, and they're, they're famous for that. They, they fix it. In the end, it looks good, you know, but the paddling underneath, you know, the duck that paddles across the pond that everybody says in the event business, it was hard, very hard. Uh, and Vancouver was, was super cool. I didn't stay all the way to the end in Vancouver. I had, I had different roles in both games too, but I got more than later on in Vancouver for event services and, and venue management. Uh so, so it was. It was. I was not only in sports. Or I was not actually not in, in charge of the sports operation. There was another person. Uh, and then I got the call from John Cummingholds Powder, uh, the company that I work for now. It was in 2007 after the season, and he said, "You want to come back here to Park City?" And it was the right time for our kids, age-wise, from a school perspective, to be to live a little bit more stable. You know, both of my boys got into ski racing. It was not my fault. It was my wife's fault. Uh, the older son competed at two Olympic games, Alpine. Uh, the younger son raced in a world cup and world championships. And uh, they all went to university of Utah. And uh, our daughter got uh, into skiing, but she liked dance, classical dance more. So she was very much involved in that. And she's just finishing up university at the university of Utah. So it was this kind of the circle that I went through. We moved, we moved continents quite often with the whole, with the whole. That, that somebody in the family is collecting stuff because the first time when I met my wife, he, she, and I only had a suitcase. And then when we came back from Vancouver, it was a twenty-two foot container. So I don't know who is collecting, but somebody's collecting stuff. <laughs> uh, and then advice, you know. Uh, 
we spoke about cross-functional. You know, if, if I talk to, to younger people that are at the start of their career, I said, you got to be flexible. You got to try to learn across, across, uh, um, across different departments, whatever you call it in the business world. And you got to listen, you know, and you got you to understand what their issues are before you make your issues uh, 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 the center point of the discussion. And this, this, that's something I've really learned at these organizing committees that if you work across the function properly, uh, and it doesn't mean that I maybe wasn't once in a while a big pain in the ass for the other people. You'll most likely can talk to other people. And they'll say, here it goes a total ding dong. But I've learned it, at least I took it with me. Uh, the other thing that I've learned, and uh, it's a little bit of an emotional thing for me, but um, you know, I, di- I, didn't, um, I didn't know Jerry Anderson when I started to work uh, um, in, in, in Salt Lake. And uh, I, stayed in, I stayed in contact with him about different ideas about doing events uh, until he passed away. But there was a meeting that I remember uh, where I was sitting there way in the beginning and we were talking about contracts, many use agreements. And there were all these lawyers that were talking about, you know, we'll use or make best efforts to do this and to do that. And I didn't understand the, the lawyer language. I never anything to do with lawyers or risk management or, you know, other functions that had to take part in, in these negotiations with the different menus. And I just came fresh from coaching, you know, I was sitting there as a, as a coach, a little cocky, thinking I already know that, you know. Oh, it doesn't have anything to do with me. Don't waste that. You know, don't put that on my hard drive. And after the first meeting, I remember that Jerry Anderson came to me and he said, Harry, I was watching you today. And he said, you, you don't know me, but we'll meet. Uh, he was pretty chill. And I said, I was watching you and you were so disengaged. And uh, the only advice that I can give you is listen to these negotiations. You will learn so much in the future. Just don't shut down. and." And, uh, and be quiet and think you've got it under control. Just listen to it. You'll understand how the whole thing works. And that's, uh, that advice is something that helped me enormously in the future. Uh, and you have no idea how many, how many lawyers I met, uh, especially over the last 14 years um, working for, for a ski resort uh, company. Uh, and... Uh, you know, how often I think about him where he said, listen, don't, don't miss anything because it's not good. And that helped me big time uh, for my future career. Uh, the other thing I tell kids is uh, be ready for change and adjust to it. You know, don't fight change. There's a, there's a good book that most like everybody knows. It's called Who Moved My Cheese? You can read it in an afternoon. It's pretty simple. Uh, but people that uh, don't embrace change will not go anywhere. Or they'll be happy sitting in their room and count numbers or doing whatever they're doing. So that, that's kind of my main takeaways for me personally, but also when I talk to other people, because it's always a mixture, you know. But the key thing for me, this contract stuff, uh, these many agreements, it was just, uh, I, you know, after he told me, after Jerry, Jerry told me, I was just there full on. It took me a little bit to be convinced, you know, uh, but uh, I, I learned very quick. And you know what angles the people are coming from. You know, it's it's almost like an interesting game. Well, it's uh, fantastic and a, a very fitting tribute to Jerry. And I appreciate you really sharing those very relevant and timeless uh, pieces of advice. Uh, I really do genuinely appreciate that. Before we conclude. Have I missed anything? Were there any stories in your notes? You like, oh, I f- I need to share that one before we finish. No, just just add on a, a link, you know, for Babel translation from Austrian English into proper English. <laughs> no, you've missed anything. I think you've hit all the spots. There's nothing that I would. Uh, there would be tons of stories to share, but uh, it's uh, you know summary. I know we're just scratching the surface, but I really appreciate you carving out time in your evening and your time is precious. 
if people want to learn more about the work that you're doing with powder, or they just want to share memories of Salt Lake 2002 or other games, uh, what's the best way for them to reach out and contact you? So the best way is my email and it's, um, it's havoc D at powder.com, but it's tricky. So the havoc is easy. So it's H E R W I G D is a Delta D at powder is without the E. So it's P O W D R.com. So it's H E R W I G D at P O W D R.com. All right. Perfect. Ervig, thank you so much again yeah. for taking the time. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast and we'll catch you again soon. Ervig, thank you. It's a pleasure. 